Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. You may be seated. It's good to have the, uh, the college students back with us this morning. Welcome, all of you. Um, Flynn, when he heard that I was going to be preaching this Sunday, he said he would not show up if I did not make a reference to VeggieTales. And so <laughs> I tried my hardest. I could not make that connection this morning, so I hope that you are still able to profit from the word preached Um, regardless of the aid of animations to help you this morning. If you would turn into your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, that's where we're going to be camping out this morning, Daniel chapter 6. I think it's very appropriate that David read from chapter 11 of Hebrews, the great hall of faith, because we are entering into the life of one of those men who's pointed out in that great hall of faith who they have lived their lives in such a way that they are living their lives for a better kingdom. They are not living for this earthly kingdom, and they demonstrate that clearly in their lives. And over the past several weeks, we've entered the life of a faithful Jew named Daniel, and we've seen his life and how he's lived in a strange land. The people of God are currently being disciplined by the Lord for their rebellion and for their worshiping of other gods, and the the Lord has sent prophet upon prophet to warn and to plead with them to repent, but to no avail. They continue down their path and they continue worshiping those gods. So he has given them over to the hands of the Babylonians. This is a very dark time in Israel's history. It's in in this dark time of uh, the, the history of redemption that we see the book of Lamentations being written. It's the prophet Jeremiah weeping over the current state of Israel because of their rebellion. We have a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's during this time that we read of those almost embarrassing portions of Scripture, like Psalm 137, where we kind of cringe as Christians when we hear about the psalmist saying, blessed is the one who takes the children of Babylon and dashes them across the rock in order to kill them. It's during this time that we see those. To use a modern phrase, Israel's having to do a lot of soul searching. They are sovereignly brought to a point of desperation. They don't have the temple. They've lost much of their identity this morning. And surely a million questions rush to their head. Like, is the Lord finished with us? How do we return? Will he come back? Will we be the people of God again? Psalm 137 verse 4 captures their state well. It says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Maybe this morning you could relate to Israel's situation. Maybe you feel too far gone this morning. Maybe you feel like you are in a dark place spiritually. And my prayer is that this passage would give you great hope. Daniel's life boldly answers these questions. He shows us how to live a life of extraordinary faithfulness to the Lord while remaining in a foreign, hostile world. In chapter one, we've seen him as as a young man refuse to be indoctrinated by the educational systems of the day and to refuse to take the diet of the people. In chapter two, we've seen him um, interpret the king's dreams with bold faith in the one who reveals all things. In chapter three, we've seen his devotion to Yahweh and refusing to bow down to the gods of the day, even if it cost him his life in the furnace. All throughout his life, Daniel has shown us how to soar in faith when the circumstances and the pressures of this world are cranked up to level 10. He truly embodies the righteous man in Psalm 1. He is like a tree firmly planted in the word of God, and all that he does, he prospers. 
And today we reach the end of the narrative portion of Daniel's life. This is the end. After this chapter, we start to get into the prophetic visions. And I'm very excited for that, and I'm sure you are too, but I'm also very, very excited and glad that I'm not preaching that this morning. (laughs) In all seriousness, please uh, pray for wisdom and discernment for your pastors as they seek to rightly divide the word of truth for you. And even though the message of our passage this morning is is very easy to comprehend as modern readers, it presents us with its own challenges. Today, I face the difficult task of preaching perhaps the most popular Bible story in all the world. I was listening to a Coldplay on my way to work the other day, and Coldplay references Daniel and the Lions, Daniel, one of their songs. We've all seen the plush, smiling lions inside the Christian bookstore. They're, they're purring along Daniel's side and as they're with him, not devouring him, but everybody's smiling and happy in the den. We've heard the children's version of the story. Flynn's seen the veggie tales. And I'm not against that. We need to be teaching the, the Bible in a way that our kids can understand. The reason I say difficult is that as 21st century Americans, we can develop a really bad habit of reading the Bible if we're not careful. Because our culture has shrunk down the way that we communicate to brief text messages and tweets that are no longer 280 characters, most of the reading that we do on a daily basis is simply for informational intake, and it's all bite-sized nuggets. It has reduced written communication to just bite-sized nuggets of information, not to, not to mention the increased use of movies, social media, and video games all cater to our growing desire for instant information and the need to always be entertained. And don't, don't hear me wrong, I'm not against entertainment. All those things are great and they're good in their place, but it can negatively shape how we encounter the scriptures. Too often, I know when I read the Bible, I tend to skip over the parts that I'm already familiar with, especially the Old Testament. It's a big book after all. As if the goal was to simply recognize the information and be like, okay, I got that, I can check that off and we can move on with life. Like we're scrolling through an inspired version of Facebook that has the Old Testament post. I'm like, oh, I already saw that post, let me just scroll on by. But God doesn't communicate to us in bite-sized nuggets of information. He's given us a book that's chalked full of stories. And some of these stories are quite lengthy. I don't know if you tried to read the Bible in one sitting. It takes a good while And he's done this in his wisdom because these stories, they pull us in emotionally and they powerfully reveal to us who God is and what he is doing in this world and the story of his redemption. Unlike any type of bite-sized nuggets of information can do. So be careful of the mentality of skipping over the portions of the Bible you already know as if the goal is just to check it off. Part of what it means that the word of God is living and that is active is that we can read the same passage over and over again a thousand times and still not fully exhaust the inexhaustible springs of its riches. The Bible never gets old. As the prophet Isaiah states, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So let's eagerly jump into this familiar stories with renewed eyes of faith, ready for the Lord to reveal himself in fresh new ways. If you would, read with me Daniel chapter 6. He would follow along, beginning with verse one. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom. 
and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injection that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God Then they came near and said before the king concerning the the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Then the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of, of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. No No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose, went in haste to the den of lions, and as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before me, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be brought out of the den. 
So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them, overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that the words that we just read on this page would be much more than words on a page. May your spirit cause our hearts to be receptive to your word, to something that is familiar to us. May we see it peering through as a window, looking to see the glory of God himself through the scriptures. Oh God, I pray that you would encourage those this morning who need to be encouraged. I pray that you would exhort those who need to be exhorted, that you would comfort those who need to be comforted, and that you would rebuke those who need to be rebuked. Father, we entrust that your word will not go void, but will accomplish your purpose in which you have sent it to do. It's the holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I got three points this morning that we're going to see in this text. Number one, life in a broken kingdom. Number two, choose this day whom you will serve. And number three, will your God save you? So let's jump right in. Life in a broken kingdom. In verse one, the scene opens with the new Medo-Persian king, Darius, picking up right where we left off last week with the death of Belshazzar. Verse one begins to fulfill part of the prophecy that we saw back in chapter two with the the statue of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. The golden kingdom of Babylon is already fading away and the Medo-Persian king empire is quickly rushing in to take its place. In the words of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, the Lord changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And in light of the recent overthrow of the Babylonian empire, King Darius attempts to secure his kingdom. Look at verses one to two with me. The text says it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account. And this is the phrase, so that the king might not suffer any loss. See, King Darius is establishing a solid form of government that cannot be easily overturned. A satrap, you might wonder what that is. Some translations render it as a lieutenant or prince, which captures the idea. Satrap is kind of like a a political leader, like a governor that we have today. He wants to bulk up his empire with the finest of officials, that what happened to Babylon will surely not happen to his kingdom. He's He's intentionally trying to make his kingdom last, but this king's plan does not align with the plan of the Almighty. The prophecy of Daniel given in chapter two shows that another kingdom will surely take its place. 
He is working against the true king of heaven. And as history tells us, his kingdom will surely not last long. Like with King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar, King Darius is going to learn the hard way that the Lord alone is the one worthy of worship. King Darius marks the third king that Daniel is serving under now. Many commentators agree that Daniel is reaching the latter years of his life. He's about 80 years old at this point. He's not new to the game. He's seen kingdoms fall and kingdoms rise. He's seen kings move in and out at the mighty command of Yahweh. He's been tested in his faith time and time again and proven faithful against a culture that is set against his God. However, with new leadership comes new trials. Through it all, Daniel has managed to repeatedly find favor in the eyes of the world Verse 2 tells us that Daniel is one of the three high officials of the 120 satraps. I mean, can you imagine that? Being one of the three over 120 other leaders over an entire kingdom, that's a, that's a high position for anybody. But the pressure continues to build. Look at verse 3. It says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel's on the verge of getting a serious promotion here. Why him? Why Daniel? Because he schmoozed his way up to the top? Because his resume is jammed packed with experience? Because he fudged a little on his qualifications? No, the text says because an excellent spirit was in him. It's like, it's like the king knew that there was something about Daniel that he couldn't quite put his finger on. Something about Daniel, Daniel, he knew that he was trustworthy, he was reliable, he was honest, he was hardworking, and living in a corrupt ancient world, the king knew that Daniel wouldn't try to maliciously overturn his rule and violently overtake him. I think Daniel models exactly what Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 3 when he gives the qualification for elders. He says, an elder must be well thought of by outsiders. And Daniel's godliness is attractive even to a pagan, unbelieving world. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. He strikes this perfect balance between being in the world but not of the world. Even though Daniel served the Babylonian and Persian empires well, his His allegiance to the heavenly empire only increases. He isn't shaped by their values. He doesn't succumb to their unethical political ways. However, his godliness does not win him friends on all sides. In verses four to five, the tension increases when several of the other high officials and satraps turn green with jealousy upon hearing of Daniel's potential promotion. They scour around looking for dirt on Daniel in order to disqualify him for this position. However, his life is so free from corruption that not even his enemies can find anything to use on him, though they search for it diligently. Look at verse 5 with me. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They maliciously use the law of God in order to ensnare him. Perhaps they're familiar with the the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, right, which is the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. 
says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The pagan nations know that Israel is to worship Yahweh alone. So these jealous leaders zero in on this aspect in order to ensnare Daniel. And just as a side note, beloved, be careful when you use the Bible to justify your selfish, sinful desires. It does not end well for these men. The Lord judges them for this. And as the apostle Peter writes, 2 Peter 3, he warns us of being influenced by the ignorant and unstable who twist the scriptures, especially difficult ones, to their own destruction. In verses six to nine, these malicious men devise a plan to use Daniel's faithfulness to the Lord in order to trip him up and get him in trouble with the king. How do they do it? They appeal to the pride of King Darius. They present him a law that requires everybody to make a petition to only him for 30 days. Nobody in the kingdom is allowed to pray to any God or any man for 30 days. And deceived by his own glory, King Darius agrees and signs this document. I mean, this is wicked. This is gross. It's uncalled for. It's deceptive. What, what did Daniel do to deserve this? He's a righteous man. He's, he's only shown grace, love, and patience towards others. He isn't rude. The Bible doesn't describe him as being harsh with unbelievers. He isn't unkind to anyone. Beloved, this is life in a broken kingdom. Lost people do lost things. Lost people say lost things. Don't be surprised by that. They are acting in accordance with their unregenerate nature. People aren't basically good, despite popular belief. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we are all dead in the trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, we are carrying out the passions of our flesh, that we are alienated from God, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds, just to list a few. This is why Jesus had to come and die, to save wretched people like you and like me from this wretched state. And the Bible is clear about this. Jesus said that in this world, you will have trouble. People will attack that. We will get splashed by the mud of others. And sometimes it will be intentionally directed at our faith. Paul warns us by saying, 2 Timothy 3, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not if, but it will happen. So don't be surprised when your coworker says something rude to you. Don't be surprised when that person cuts you off in traffic. Don't be surprised if people act really selfishly towards you or they don't treat you with respect or they mock you because of your beliefs or challenge your morals. Don't be surprised if they deeply wound you. Look at verse 10. Does it say, so when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went and called his friends to vent. Or he went home and put something on Netflix so that he could escape from the world and binge on something mind-numbing for the next few hours. No, it doesn't say that, in case, in case you were wondering. When Daniel is treated unfairly by the people of the, of the world, it doesn't push him away from God, it pushes him towards God. He entrusts their future to the one who deals justly, Trials don't diminish our faith. They provide a platform to display it. 
He doesn't speak bad about them behind their back. There's no trace of bitterness. He's not lashing out in anger. And he's not annoyed with them. Be careful if you feel annoyed by someone this morning. It's a sneaky, sneaky form of anger that is so dangerous if you leave it unchecked. Biblical counselor Jeremy Peer helpfully defines annoyance. He says, quote, annoyance is that low-grade againstness that stays quietly with us in situations we don't like, often resulting in irritability. Say that again. Annoyance is that low-grade againstness that stays quietly with us in situations we don't like, often resulting in irritability. Annoying people annoy us because they're withholding something that we want. Maybe you want to have a sense of personal space and that person's just a little bit too close and is breathing a little bit too heavily. And, or maybe you want people to respect you or they want, you want them to see you a certain way or treat you a certain way and you don't get that. At the end of the day, I'm responsible for being annoyed. While there's certain people who can draw that response out of me, it's ultimately my response. What comes out of my heart is already what's inside. Look, I love you this morning, but if you're annoyed with someone, it's your fault. They can't make you sin. They can only shake the bottle of your heart, and what comes out is what's already inside, and annoyance as a form of anger is your response. James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Did you catch that? What James is saying is before the, uh, an external conflict and exchange is happening, it's not actually the external conflict that's happening. <laughs> what causes the conflict is the ruling desires in your heart. It's been said before, there's a fight inside way before there's a fight outside. It is the passions at war within you. You want something so desperately that you are willing to go to unrighteousness rather than righteousness to get it. And when we show any form of anger, including getting annoyed, lashing out, being bitter, closing up, withholding good from someone, we are wanting things more than righteousness. The desire doesn't have to be wrong. It can be a good thing, but when we are willing to sin to get it or sin if we don't get it, that's how we know it's an idol in our life. So if you're walking around annoyed, if you're walking around angry towards someone, you should not think casually about that. They're withholding something you desperately want, and you're tempted to treat them sinfully because of it. And that is a sure sign of an idol ruling your heart to, to cause a response like that. I encourage you, repent of that and trust their future to the Lord in doing so, you can be free to love your enemies and overcome their evil with good. The Apostle Paul summarizes in Romans chapter 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is life in a broken kingdom. 
Brings us to our second point. Choose this day whom you will serve. So Daniel is thrown into this massive fork and the road. Will he reject the king's new law and jeopardize his life like he did before? Or will he succumb to the pressures of the culture and break his devotions for just 30 days? I mean, 30 days. He can just not worship the Lord for 30 days. He doesn't have to worship any other God. He can just stop worshiping the Lord for 30 days and then just get back. I mean, God will understand, right? Life's hard. Life's difficult. The pressures are hard. It's not that big of a deal, is it? Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. The text says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem, got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. It seems like without even flinching, Daniel continues to praise the Lord three times a day as he did previously. And the text makes clear he's not doing this in direct response as some type of rebellion. He did it previously. This is what he's always done. Also, it's worth, pointing, uh, it's worth noting that the scripture doesn't command this. Nowhere in, in the Old Testament, on the law, does it command that you must pray three times a day. Daniel is simply taking the spirit of the law and applying it and modeling what it looks like to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. It's not legalism. It's love. He exemplifies the cry of Psalm 63, which says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My flesh longs for you. For Daniel, prayer is as essential as life itself. I love how Thomas Watson puts it. A godly man will soon live without food than without prayer. It's here that we begin to tap into Daniel's quote-unquote spiritual secret here. How does this man live a life of radical faithfulness to the Lord in the face of a hostile world? He knows where the battle is lost and where the battle is won. It all begins with your fellowship with God. Show me a Christian who is casual about communing with God. I will show you a Christian who is casual about fighting sin. Those two go hand in hand. You become what you behold. The key to Daniel's godliness is not that he's some super Christian way up here that has figured out how to magically trust the Lord in every given circumstance. It's that he's built a regular practice of casting his cares on the Lord in the voice of prayer that when it comes, something big like this comes, he simply does what he's always done. Do you long for the presence of God? Do you long to be before the throne of grace, before your gracious heavenly Father, and just linger there. We see that with Jesus' life. So many times the gospel writers would say that he, he slipped away to go pray. When the crowds needed him, he, he would slip away for hours. Do you, do you long for that? Or does the thought of even praying three times a day bore you? Maybe 15 minutes of prayer. Man, that's, that's a lot. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we find ourselves in a bit of a prayer hamster wheel. We all know what that is, the prayer hamster wheel. It's where we, uh, we say the same old things about the same old things, and it gets real old real fast. You're in that prayer hamster wheel, and when you do that over and over, it becomes really hard to pray because it's boring when you're praying the same old things about the same old things. 
And guess what? When you don't, when you feel like, when you don't feel like praying, you don't pray. <laughs> but what if I told you there's a really simple solution to getting out of the prayer hamster wheel? It's this: when you pray, pray the Bible. The best place to start is the book of Psalms. It's been said that there is a psalm for every sigh of the soul. It's the soundtrack of the entire Bible. It is given from God for the unique purpose of praise to God. So why not use that? I challenge you, next time you pray, take your Bible, turn to a chapter of the book of Psalms, and pray line by line, bringing all of your needs, all of your wants, all of your requests, and direct them Godward by praying through a psalm. Look, there's 150 chapters. You're not gonna run out of things to say. And if you do, then just start over. I encourage you, follow in Daniel's footsteps as he models this crucial aspect of fellowship with the Lord. Resolve to develop a regular pattern of prayer. Talk about how you're gonna do this this week in community groups. Maybe even practice praying through the Bible in your community group. What a great thing to do with the people of God. So Daniel is caught red-handed in the act of praying to Yahweh. Surely his enemies were carefully watching his every move so that they could find just the perfect time to snatch him. They take their complaints to the king and kindly remind him that uh, he just instated this new law which prohibits all of this. The king initially responses Uh, responds in verse 12 by saying, the law stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. He talks a big game, right? But when the accusers inform the king that the violator is actually Daniel, his attitude towards the law greatly changes. Can you feel the tension growing here? Look at verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Surely now, he's realized that he's been duped. He's been tricked into this. He frantically attempts to define his way, find a loophole in the law that he just instated, but to no avail, he's in way over his head. Though he try, he cannot save Daniel. The voice of the accusers continued to rise in verse 15 when they remind him no order of the king can be changed. Darius has no choice but to punish Daniel for his crimes against his law. He must be fed to the lion's den. There is no other option. The law demands judgment and Daniel is guilty. So the king submits to the pressure and commands Daniel to be cast into the lion's den. And in the perverted eyes of the world, this is right and this is just. After all, he broke this law. Look at verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. He is deeply disturbed by this whole situation right here. He knows that Daniel doesn't deserve this. He's a righteous man. What has he done but to serve and to lead with honor? 
and with overwhelming anxiety, the king spent the night without any food or his regular entertainment, no sleep, millions of questions and horrific thoughts plague his sleepless night. Minutes go by, then hours, and the moment the sunlight begins to creep into the king's chambers, he's off to go see what happened to Daniel, which brings us to our last point. This is the climax of the story right here. Will Daniel's God save him? Look at verse 19 with me. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have, not, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and, demand, and it commanded that Daniel was taken up out of the den of the lions. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Will Daniel's God save him? The resounding answer is yes, he did. He is completely unharmed by the lions, not a scratch on him. God delivered him, and like time and time again, we've seen Daniel's faith in the Lord pay off. And it's here that we see Daniel teaches us something very, very important about faith. Saving faith looks like not just trusting the power of the Lord, but also the timing of the Lord. If you notice, he had to spend the night in the lion's den. That's, that's less than ideal, to say the least. God could have saved him way before that point, but he didn't. He trusted in his power that he was able to do it and that his timing was also best in doing it. And this morning, God doesn't promise us a problem-free life. He doesn't promise us never to be put into the lion's den. God is our refuge and strength, and God's version of refuge is not the absence of trouble, but the nearness in the midst of trouble. Because Daniel trusted in his God, he was rescued and vindicated before others, and he was proved blameless before the Lord. He is saved from his accusers. And while Daniel's life of faith is impressive and it's given as an example for us to follow in suit, I would be remiss if I led you to believe that Daniel is the hero of the story. Did you catch the hero of the story here? If you blinked, you could have missed him. Look again at verse 22 with me. Daniel says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly uses angels to accomplish his miraculous work on earth, but this isn't any ordinary angel. This is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord makes several special appearances in the Old Testament. He appears to Moses in the burning bush, to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army, to Gideon, the mighty man of valor. In many texts, the angel of the Lord openly receives worship that is due to Yahweh alone. Whereas other angels are quick to refuse it. In Revelation chapter 19, John falls flat on his face in worship before an angel. And the angel's like, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. Don't do that. I'm not worthy of that. 
Other angels do not receive worship, but the angel of the Lord does. In other texts, the angel of the Lord is given the name of Yahweh. His name is used interchangeably. It becomes kind of confusing. Who are we talking about? The angel of the Lord or the Lord? The angel of the Lord is addressed as the Lord. People in the Old Testament who've only seen the angel of the Lord are said to see God face to face. When God promises that his very presence will be with the people of Israel, it's the angel of the Lord who goes with them. He possesses full authority and character of the Lord himself. And while many Hebrew theologians wrestle with this quote-unquote problematic angel, we as Christians joyfully embrace this angel as the second person of the Trinity. It is the pre-incarnate son of God himself. Who is the angel with Daniel in the lion's den? Who is the one that even the wind and the waves and the mouth of lions obey? It's none other than the Lord Jesus himself. It's worth noting that there's no mention of an angel when Daniel was in the comfort of his home praying. It's when he was alone in the darkest part of the night, at the bottom of a pen, that's when Daniel was face to face with Jesus. Imagine with me what that conversation might have looked like that night. Perhaps it went something like this. Jesus appears and says to Daniel, Daniel, I know that you have been falsely accused. I know that you have been unfairly judged by the hands of sinful laws, sinful men. I know that you are faithful to me and that you stand blameless before God. Do not fear, for I'm with you. I've been sent to protect you from this broken lost world. I am your God and your faith is not in vain. I will redeem you. I will save my people. You see, it it won't be long before they do the same to me. I will be falsely accused. I will be judged by sinful men and found guilty in the world's eyes. I will be maliciously betrayed and accused. They will seek to harm me and put me to death just like they did to you. They will cover my tomb with a stone and seal it just like they did with you. And those who care for me will leave distraught just like with you. But I must go through with it. I will save all my people, not simply from the lion's den, but from the grip of the evil one who prowls around like a roaring lion. I will die a sinner's death, but O Daniel, just as God vindicated you, so he will also vindicate me. I will not stay in that grave, but I will rise again, claiming victory over sin and death. They will rush to my burial place just like they did with you, but they will not find me there. I will be at the glorious right hand of the Father and I will purchase my people and they will no longer be slaves to sin and I will cleanse them and I will put a new heart in them so that they will desire righteousness and I will empower them by sending the Holy Spirit so that they can live in holiness. So rejoice, Daniel. Your trial is not meaningless. I am showing the nations my greatness through your redemption from this lion's den. Pagan kings and nations will soon come to know me. God will be exalted in the end. And evil will be obliterated. And beloved, the same one who came to Daniel's rescue 
is the one who comes to your rescue today. Like with Daniel, he will be with you in the darkest trials. Like with Daniel, he is a present help in time of need. Like with Daniel, he gives grace each day. But unlike Daniel, he has brought about a new and better salvation. Instead of saving us from a pit full of lions, he saves us from our ultimate enemy, sin and death. He has risen to give you newness of life and to be able to walk in that newness and to walk alongside God himself who is light. And he empowers us mightily to face this sinful world with radical faith and love in God. Be encouraged today. You are never alone in your trial. You can trust him even when you cannot trace him. He is good and he will never forsake you. However, the Lord's salvation always includes judgment for the unbelieving. Look at verse 24. And then the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them, overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. In stark contrast to Daniel, who was not even scratched by the lions, these men could not have reached the bottom of the pit before they were absolutely destroyed by the lions. Then the very trap that they ensnared, the very trap that they set up to ensnare Daniel became their ultimate undoing. It is the judgment of God. It is swift and it's unexpected and sometimes quite ironic. And like with Daniel, Jesus' miraculous salvation is judgment to those worshiping false gods. Jesus said that he will come like a thief in the night to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready for that? Will you stand blameless before the Lord if he were to come right now? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus alone today? Believer, is there any sin that you're holding on to this morning that you would be ashamed of if Jesus found out? If he were to come and he were to return and bring you into glory. Is there any good desire that you have that maybe you've taken too far and maybe isn't an idol in your life? If so, rid yourself of it today. Don't tarry. As we're wrapping up here, let your eyes fall to verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and language that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions... So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The chapter ends with a Gentile pagan king proclaiming to every tribe, nation, and tongue that Daniel's God is the true everlasting God whose kingdom knows no end. And that is our great hope today, where Daniel's deliverance foreshadowed the inclusion of Gentiles into knowing Yahweh. Jesus' salvation secured the salvation of both Jew and Gentile alike 
People like you and me can be saved today because of that. We can know him, we can treasure him, we can love him and find the satisfaction that we so desperately need in him. If you would, pray with me. Oh, Father, what a, what a glorious text that we have before us, Father. What a glorious story of your redemption that we have seen And a man who lived generations and generations ago, who's long left this world, to know that we as believers under the new covenant can come and can glean and can worship you because we worship the same God. Father, we praise you that you redeemed Daniel from that den, that you sent your angel to be with him and to shut up the mouths of lions, and we praise you that that's not where your redemption ended, but it continued through many promises, through many prophecies. Many, many years later, this angel would take on flesh. This God would take on bone. He would come and live among us. And he would be treated just the way Daniel was treated. Father, we thank you that you saw it fit to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus. I pray for those who, who don't know you this morning, who either know that or who are deceived in thinking that they do know you this morning. I pray that you would you'd use this text to speak to them in a powerful way, that you would, you would cause life to be born in their hearts, that they would cry out in saving faith, I turn from my sin and I trust in my God who has come to save me. Father, we thank you for your salvation. May that never become stale to us as believers, but may we live in daily gratitude and overwhelming sense of joy every time that we wake up knowing that my God has redeemed me. My God went through the darkest of night so that I can have the brightest of day. We praise you, Father, for this time. It's your holy name I pray, amen.